I have three basic announcements up here. Number one, I will be leaving on uh, Wednesday to go to Ukraine. I will leave on the 4th. I'll return on the 20th. Schedule is the same. Taylor Williams will be here to cover the pulpit the next two Sunday mornings. And I will be teaching on Tuesday and Thursday night via DVD. I've recorded a new series on Jude that we will begin this coming Thursday night. Tuesday night is will be in Acts as usual. And then Thursday, starting Thursday, will be in Jude until I return. So that series on Jude will be covered intermittently as I um, travel and am gone for one reason or another. So I'm my own backup. Second announcement is to remind you about garage sale items for the um, uh, Camp Arete and raising uh, money for Camp Arete and helping with the uh, – and also volunteers to go – during the week, I think it's the week before and including Memorial Day weekend, uh, to go up to Colorado to work, work and help build a chapel there, which will go to cutting the costs of the uh, rental of the camp for the summer, which uh, helps the kids. And then also the pastor's conference in March, which is March 12th through 14th, and that will be uh, all the information is at www.houstonbibleconferences.com. Uh, one word, HoustonBibleConferences.org. Uh, there should be a link on the homepage of both the uh, uh, West Houston Bible Church and Dean Bible Ministries website uh, to go to that. And it seemed like there was, oh, one other announcement. I know uh, some people here and I don't know how many people who are live streaming have Logos Bible software, but they put the uh, spiritual warfare book that Tommy Ice and I wrote several years ago on their pre-pub offering, pre-publication offering uh, back in the spring. And I was just told by someone in the congregation this morning, I hadn't gotten the email yet, but that they've announced that it's going to be released within two weeks. So it's at a discount price until they release it. Then it will go to full price. I mean, that's the difference between $10 and $12. So I don't want anybody to get uh, really put in a bind financially over that. So anyhow, that will be available um, in Lagos. So if you have it, make sure that you get it. You have about a week or two to get it on prepub before it comes out. Well, we come together this morning, the first day, first Sunday of 2012, to worship the Lord. 2012 should be an interesting year. We'll undoubtedly learn about the uh, Mayan Mayan calendar and the Mayan prophecies a lot this year. Uh, we'll learn about, and everybody will be on uh, uh, tender hooks in December next year, expecting the end of the world on 12 12 12. Should be a lot of disappointed people on 12 12, on um, 12 13 12. But um, so we'll see. So there'll be a lot of nonsense going on about that this year. But um, Hopefully, we pray that this will be another great year for us, for West Houston Bible Church, and for our spiritual life and spiritual growth. I'm always appreciative of all the people who do so much around here to help with this ministry, both in terms of the church and in terms of Dean Bible Ministries, but also many letters and emails that I receive, and many of them we do put out for people to read uh, as people let us know how much they appreciate the ministry. And so it just shows how God is using it in spite of all the negative things that may be going on in the world or in our country, things that surround us. 
we know that God is still working, God is still in control, and that many, many positive things are happening in people's lives because of their trust in the Lord. Scripture says that we need to come to the Lord in fellowship when we worship, in all areas of worship, and especially this morning as we will observe the Lord's table this first Sunday of the new year. So let's uh, begin with uh, our opening prayer, with some silent prayer initially to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful again that we have the opportunity as a body of believers to freely assemble in this nation, to freely teach your word, to freely proclaim the eternal truth, the good news that Jesus Christ has come to earth, the eternal second person of the Trinity has taken on humanity that he might go to the cross and there die as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sins that we might have a free salvation Salvation based only on faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we're thankful for this nation. We're thankful for the freedom that we have. We pray that you might, in this election year, work in such a way as to uh, block the intents of those whose uh, ideas would limit, continue to limit or further the limitation of freedom, and that you would give wisdom to those who would... Uh, seek to expand our freedoms to return to a strict interpretation of, of the Constitution as intended by its authors and that we might have true freedom restored in this nation in numerous areas or at least reverse the decline. Father, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for Jim Myers. Uh, we pray for Chafer Seminary. pray for others who are out uh, evangelizing as well as proclaiming your word and in many different ways, they have different different needs. We know specifically about the Myers' need for longer-term visas, and we just put that in your hands. Father, we pray for us as a congregation this coming year that this will be a time when we continue to increase our personal realization that nothing else matters but our spiritual growth, our spiritual advance, our uh, growth and pursuit of spiritual maturity and that we may make this a another year where we put that first and that we see you work in our lives. Father, we pray today as we worship you in song, in the Lord's table, and in the teaching of your word, that this will be a time where you are honored and glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand for our first hymn, number 175. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 175, please stand. From Genesis to Revelation, the focal point of the scripture is upon God's redemptive plan for mankind because Adam sinned, the entire human race was plunged into condemnation, determined guilty before the bar of God's justice, and so the only solution would be one provided by God. The Old Testament predicts and announces the coming of that salvation. The New Testament reveals what that salvation was, how it was accomplished through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, and the implications of that now for our own individual spiritual life. In the Old Testament, the, there are not only specific prophecies about 
the work of the Messiah and his coming, but there are numerous uh, pictures and patterns that are given in Revelation of this, in the Revelation of the Old Testament in order to uh, provide a, a picture, a description for believers so that when the Messiah came, he would be identified. One of the most significant uh, times that, that presents these patterns for redemption was when Israel, as a nation, as a people in bondage in Egypt, were redeemed by God, brought out of the slavery, the physical slavery in Egypt, and given their freedom so that they might be taken then eventually to the promised land where they would become a new nation. It is in that Exodus event that we have numerous uh, pictures of the redemptive work of the Messiah, the most significant of which is the Passover. And everything about the Passover, the uh, choosing of a lamb, its observation to make sure that it was indeed without spot or blemish, the sacrifice of the lamb, and the application of the blood of the lamb to the doorposts of the house all depict features related to the work of Christ on the cross. Passover for uh, the Jewish people was observed after that as a memorial, but it also had that anticipatory factor where it looked forward to the ultimate provision of the perfect Passover lamb who would die on the cross for our sins, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus observed a Passover meal, his last Passover, the night before he went to the cross, he took two of the elements of the Passover meal, gave them new meaning, and showing that what they ultimately had been picturing in terms of his own person and work, and then assigned them uh, new meaning for believers after the cross to observe regularly as a memorial to remember who he is and what he did for us and to remember uh, the, all of the work of God in our salvation. And so this is the focal point of the Lord's table. He took the unleavened bread and the cup, the wine, which was the third cup of redemption, and he gave them new meaning. The bread represented his his humanity that was sinless. It was unleavened bread, leaven speaking of sin. So he speaks of his humanity, his perfection, his qualification to go to the cross. The cup represented his work on the cross, his death. It is the red color of the wine or grape juice that is reminiscent of the color of blood and is a picture of physical death, which in turn stands for his spiritual death, the time when he was judged by God the Father between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that day for our, uh, for our sins when the darkness covered Golgotha. And at that time, God the Father imputed to God the Son the sins of the entire human race, and it was paid for. As a result, we have real forgiveness, the cancellation of the debt against us, which is the topic in our passage in Colossians today. So we come to celebrate the Lord's table to remember what he has done for us and what it means in our own lives, in our own thinking, and in our priorities, and in our performance. So we will begin with the uh, bread and then the cup. The Lord's table is for anyone who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who are not believers, it is just empty ritual without any, any reality. I'm going to ask Doug Karn if he would please come up and return thanks for the bread.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your perfect plan for us, which includes sending your Son to this earth in hypostatic union to live his life in sinless perfection and become the uniquely qualified Lamb without spot and without blemish to pay the price for our sins in his own body on the cross. Fathers, we take the bread. We pray that you will make our actions and our thoughts glorifying to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. It's our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. As he came to the bread, the Lord broke it, passed it out to his disciples, and said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you eat this, do so in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Morgan Franklin to come up and return thanks for the cup, please. Father, as we continue to reflect on the provision that you gave, made for us on the cross, as we take this cup which signifies your blood, and we know that all sacrifices included the blood and that this will never be repeated, it was once and for all, Help us to continue to reflect on the humility and the the grace provided for all of us through this sacrifice. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the cup, which was the third cup within the Passover meal, called the cup of redemption. And he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's stand for our hymn number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We'll sing the third verse softly and crescendo on the fourth. Please stand. Scripture clearly teaches that that giving is part of the believer's responsibility, part of his spiritual life. Giving is just as much part of our worship as singing, as observing the Lord's table, as reading God's Word, studying God's Word, all of these are just different facets of our worship, our obedience, our submission to to the Lord. Giving in the New Testament is not a based on a required amount of giving, which is what we have in the Old Testament called a tithe, a 10% uh, assessment, which was made on... Uh, actually, there were three tithes, as we've studied. Uh, two were taken every year, one every third year. But in the New Testament, it follows the pattern of the free will offerings and free will giving of the Old Testament law as well, that it's up to the individual to make the decision. It's up to the individual to express his gratitude, his grace orientation to God, as well as his desire to support the local church and the local church ministry. Scripture teaches, as every man purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we can express our gratitude so freely in this manner. Father, we're thankful that we have such a 
a tremendous example of grace and giving in the Lord Jesus Christ as our eternal gift for salvation. Now, Father, as we give these gifts, we do so as an expression of our gratitude to all that you, for all that you've done for us, all that you've provided for us, all of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus and our dependency upon you for our sustenance. And, Father, it is through these gifts that we support the teaching of your word as well as the missionaries that we support through this local, local church. And, Father, we ask that you bless these gifts in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever, Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord to ask his guidance on our study of his word. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have revealed yourself to us over the period of about 16 or 1700 years and through the writers of the scripture, through the prophets and the apostles, through God the Holy Spirit, you inspired them so that as you breathed out that which you wanted us to be able to read and study, that was breathed in by them, and then it was breathed out in terms of the writing. You oversaw the process so that it was not any more difficult for you who created the heavens and earth and all that is in them to guarantee the precision and accuracy of your word than it was to create all things. You have provided your word for us. It is your word. It is the blueprint for history. It's the blueprint for our salvation. It is the blueprint for our understanding of life. And without your word, then we're just wandering in darkness. There's no light. So, Father, now as we turn to the light of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand what we study, what we read, as we come to grips with the wealth that we have in Christ, the spiritual riches that are ours that enable us to face all the challenges that of every day in life and that we might glorify you in everything that we uh, think, everything we say, everything we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, and we're continuing our study on this one section in verses 12 through 14, Colossians 2, 12 through 14. On the slide, 
I've titled this Forgiveness, God, Others, and Self, which is a good title. I might keep it. We might change it to what I thought of a minute ago, and that is giving is the key to forgiveness because that's really the the thing people have so much trouble with in forgiveness. People have difficulty with grace. Uh, People, when we witness to them, people who are not believers, have difficulty with understanding how God can save us and we don't have to do anything for us. It's, It's a free gift. If somebody comes up to you and gives you a magnificent present, you feel like, well, wait a minute, let me pay you for it. Let me do something. I mean, that's something that may be cultural for us as Americans that's drilled into us that we want to somehow do something for it. But all of that runs counter to what God teaches in terms of grace. I can't tell you how many times over the last uh, 40 years or so in ministry when just in dealing with people, somebody, you do something for them or you give them something, they say, no, 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 I want want to help. I, I don't, I can't. People have trouble accepting something that is just freely given. That's part of our self absorption. It's part of our arrogance. We want to do something for it. But the key to forgiveness, as we'll see in this study, is understanding grace. If you don't understand grace, you don't understand forgiveness. And if you don't understand grace, it will be extremely difficult for you to forgive others. And there is a connection in Scripture, a clear connection between the vertical forgiveness that we have uh, from God in terms of the day-to-day experience of the Christian life and our forgiveness of others. And sometimes that's hard for people to understand, and we're going to look at a couple of those passages in our study today, that how is it that there's this this connection? And and we'll see that. But at the very root of forgiveness is this idea of, in the English etymology, you have the word give because it is based on giving. One of the two key words that we'll see uh, today that express forgiveness in the New Testament is the Greek word charizomai, which is from the noun charis, meaning grace. It has to do with giving. And so forgiveness as a as an English word expresses that in the sec, that second syllable it's something we don't always always think about but that's what the essence of forgiveness is grace which means it's not earned or deserved and that is so hard for us that when someone has hurt us offended us someone has betrayed us someone has done something uh to us it is so hard for us to deal with them in not in terms of what they deserve, but in terms of what they don't deserve. And yet the pattern that we see in Scripture on forgiveness is always the cross, where you and I received full forgiveness of all sin, positionally and experientially, and we didn't deserve it. And that becomes the uh, precise pattern for forgiving others and those in our lives that we uh, that don't, we know don't deserve it, but what are the principles? Is where, where do we? How do we practically apply what the scripture teaches? Well, to do that, you have to understand what the scripture teaches about that vertical forgiveness with God. The passage we've been looking at is in Colossians two eleven through fifteen, which is the centerpiece of this section that extends down through the end of chapter three, that focuses on the sufficiency of Christ. And this particular section, beginning in verse 
4 down through the end of this chapter really focuses on our riches in Christ. And one of the most significant riches that we have is forgiveness and what that what that means. I, th- I think sometimes we have a hard time in our culture today understanding forgiveness because as products of our culture, we have a culture that has watered down the concept of sin. So if you don't have a very profound concept of sin, then you can't have a very profound concept of forgiveness because sin isn't that big of a deal. So forgiveness isn't that big of a deal in terms of, of relationship with God. So I think there's a, there, there's a correlation uh, there with, uh, with, with some people. Now, this passage, and especially verses 11 through 15, talks, first of all, about our position in Christ, which we've studied already in verses 11 and 12, dealing with the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, whereby every believer at the instant of salvation is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In that identification with Christ, God the Holy Spirit positionally cleanses us from all sin, and we are placed within the body of Christ. We are in Christ so that we have those those riches. That's the focus of 11 and 12. And then in 13, we read, When you were dead in your, the, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. And then we have that phrase, having forgiven, which is a participle that really has a causal sense there because he had already graciously canceled out all of our transgressions. I've just added that as a as an amplified expression of what that means, picking up the nuance of the grammar there so that we understand that 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 when we trusted in Christ and that instant were regenerated, but something had already happened. That's the emphasis of the grammar. We had already been forgiven in one sense, and there are four senses of forgiveness in the Scripture. Verse 14 goes on to say, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The more I study this, the more profound this passage is in terms of all that Paul packs into these five verses. In these verses, we see the connection between the stages in our salvation. A lot of folks don't understand this fully or comprehend this distinction. To me, this is one of the most significant things I ever learned in my Christian life, learned it years ago when I was a teenager, is that there are three distinct aspects to our Christian life. They are, though, connected. They're they're not so isolated that there's not a connection, but it's not a connection, as some would say, that if you are justified, you must necessarily uh, grow and mature as a believer. Otherwise, you probably weren't actually justified. That's the essential message of what is called lordship salvation. But it it shows that there is a flow here and a connection in phase one, which is an instant in time when we, any of us trust, believe Jesus died on the cross for our sins. At that instant, Scripture says we're identified with him, we're separated unto him. That's the whole, that whole word group that's translated sanctify, holy, consecrate. 
those Hebrew and Greek words are, are so critical for understanding what happens here. We are set apart as a distinct, unique people of God as we're identified with Christ. And at that instant, in terms of sin, we're just freed from the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation. And that's it. Boom. At the instant of salvation. But because of that, because we understand as church-age believers all that happens at that instant, that there is a, an incredible, magnificent uh, transaction that takes place wherein God the Father not only imputes to each of us the righteousness of Christ, but he does, as it were, puts billions and billions of dollars. We, we just won or we're given the winning ticket in the cosmic lottery and billions and trillions of dollars just got put in our account that we can never uh, out, we can never outspend, and that's ours. And those are, that's what Paul's talking about in this passage. So that's what we're given at justification at phase one when we become a Christian, and the spiritual life is really understanding, coming to grips with all that the Scripture tells us that God did for us at that instant, and then learning to live on that basis learning to live as if we're billionaires or trillionaires or quadrillionaires and not paupers. In the progress of our spiritual growth, which is uh, also experiential sanctification, we grow and we mature, and as we do so, we realize the freedom that we have from the sin nature. We're freed from the penalty of the sin nature at phase one. The tyranny of the sin nature is broken, but we're so used to obeying the sin nature that such a deeply ingrained cellular orientation of our thinking that it takes years of study and application to learn to live as if we're no longer that slave to the sin nature. We have to let the Holy Spirit reprogram all of our thinking, and it doesn't get it all done by the time we finish. But that's the goal of our spiritual life until we die physically. When we die physically, then and only then are we freed from the presence of sin and the sin nature. This is referred to as ultimate sanctification or glorification. And the passage that we're looking at here is addressed to believers. So he's not, he's, the focus here is on what happened at the cross with a view to helping the reader understand its present time application in their spiritual growth. He's not just, Paul doesn't just go back here to talk about the gospel here so that they can get saved. Uh, I find more and more there, there's always the sort of the uh, um, caricature misrepresentation of some churches that all they do is give the gospel. And in some cases, and maybe a lot of cases, that's true, and it's all oriented towards evangelism. And there's a difference between giving the gospel oriented to evangelism and giving the gospel so that you as a believer understand what really happened then. Because when you first heard that simple message that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and by trusting in him you have eternal life, all that's behind that was not was not available to you. You didn't understand it. You didn't appreciate it. You barely even understood what you were believing and only as we go through years and years and years of studying the Scripture does it become clear to us all that God did to save us and all that he gave us as now new members of the royal family. 
So the focus in in this passage is on spiritual growth. All through this passage, he's addressing believers and telling them what the sufficiency of Christ really means on a day-to-day basis, how to think like that. One way we've described this, I've described this in terms of charts, is that when we are saved at that instant, we're identified with Christ in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. This is the positional reality, the positional truth that we have in terms of all that we have. Now, maybe uh, an analogy might help understand this. Let's say you are born to parents who are American citizens but are living outside of the country in some place like, let's pick some place uh, like China or uh, Nigeria or India or some place that, that's really divorced from a lot of uh, modern realities, maybe in some deep, dark, oppressive Muslim country like the Sudan. And as long as you're living there, you don't realize a whole lot of freedom. But as a United States citizen, you have access to an incredible amount of freedom. And you have to learn to live in light of that freedom, even though you're living in the midst of maybe a a dark, oppressive area. And that's how it is for believers. We live in a world that is ruled by the prince and the power of the air, the, the devil, who darkens the minds of unbelievers and seeks to distract and destroy believers. That's why when Paul ends this in verse 15, this, this uh, discourse here, the focus is on how those invisible powers within the angelic conflict, Satan and the fallen angels, are disarmed at the cross. And so there's no longer a need to fear those supernatural elements. So in terms of our positional truth, that's all real. We just have to learn to uh, apply it in terms of our temporal, temporal realities, in terms of walking by the Spirit. Now let me remind you of the structure, the flow of thought here that Paul has. In verse 12, he talks about that that position that we have in Christ of being baptized. He says, in him, there's no and at the beginning of that verse, which some translations put in there. Uh, Some translator thought that if by adding and, it would uh, uh, improve the flow of thought. That's not there in the original. In him, you were baptized. That is, you are placed in Christ, identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You're baptized when you're buried with him in uh, baptism, that is not literal water baptism. That is, This is all talking about that spiritual identification with Christ and by which we were raised together with him. So the picture in terms of water baptism is that a person was taken, they, they, they are dry, they're plunged into the water, which ends their previous experience. They were dry, now they're wet all over. Totally. It wasn't sprinkling, it was immersion, which is what baptism means. Then when they come out, they're in a new state. That's the identification. By being identified with the water is a picture of cleansing. And that's how it's used sometimes in in the Scripture. But it's that picture of the total positional cleansing that we have at the instant of salvation. And when we come out of the water in believer's baptism, that is a picture of of our new status in Christ. Now, the ritual of believer's baptism is designed like the ritual of the Lord's table in order to teach an abstract doctrine. 
it's hard for people to get their mental fingers around this idea of positional truth. I mean, just think of that title. It's not the kind of language or terminology you normally use every day. And you have to think about it a little bit before that becomes a, a familiar enough concept where it's really usable. Uh, positional truth, our identification with Christ. There are certain um, uh, groups within Christianity. There are certain, I think, Plymouth Brethren groups and others who talk about identification truths. Uh, that was a big term came out, that came out of the Keswick movement as well, identification truths. And, and some of the other aspects that some of these groups teach may not be right on target, but that is, is we have to learn to live in light of those identification truths that are in Scripture. That does not negate the utilization of 1 John 1, 9 for forgiveness. Unfortunately, some of the groups that teach that also say, well, because we're identified with Christ, we don't need to confess our sins anymore. Uh, that, that's, those are, that's apples and oranges, two different issues, where identification, our identification with Christ tells us what we have in him, and 1 John 1, 9 tells us how to recover fellowship where we can utilize what we do have in him no matter what else has has taken place so verse 12 talks about our identification with him which is the basis for our riches in him then verse 13 tells us what happens you being dead that are should be translated when you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of the flesh he made you alive together with him either by when or because he forgave you all trespasses that would be indicating uh, what goes on back at the cross again. Um, he, that's when he forgave us all trespasses. That was the legal or forensic identification because he had canceled it when he took it, when he nailed it to the cross. See, that's the key phrase is that last temporal participle there is telling us that all these things that happen in terms of cancellation, forgiveness of sin, happens in this verse, the type of forgiveness talked about in this verse is talking about something that happened at the cross. That was almost 2,000 years ago. That's not talking about, so therefore that can't be talking about the kind of forgiveness you experience when you confess your sins on the basis of 1 John 1, 9. It can't be talking about the kind of uh, forgiveness you experience when you trusted Christ as your Savior because that happened sometime in the uh, 20th or 21st century. It can only tell you what happened at the cross in the first century. So it's got to be a different vantage point on forgiveness than those other two that we were, that we usually talk about. So verse 13 emphasizes our, our status, status at the time of, of uh, salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. I've emphasized the grammar here, which is so important. The, the being dead it really is a participle. It's present tense. Now, that's always important to understand the timing of it because a present tense participle happens at the same time that the action of the verb takes place. An aorist participle will come either before or possibly at the same time, usually before the action of the main verb, and then a uh, future tense happens after the action of the main verb. So that's one of the great simple grammar principles to understand. So the being dead uh, has uh, uh, is a present tense. It happens at the same time as the main verb, which is he has made alive. So it's expressing your condition, my condition, at the moment that God made us alive together with him. 
It expresses that status we had. We were dead spiritually, not physically. So it should be translated when we were dead in our trespasses and sins or possibly though or although you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Either one expresses the fact that our status at that time was dead. We are physically alive but spiritually dead, separated from God. A lot of people want to dispute that because they they, oh, well, I had this connection with God. I just feel so spiritual. And that's the paganism of our day. Same kind of paganism was surrounding the people in Colossae. They had those same kind of ideas that were present in their, in their culture. And that's why Paul always starts this with a recognition that we, you have to understand you're dead, that, that there's a penalty. You're born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 starts off the same way, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He also brings in this phrase of circumcision. You were dead in your trespasses, which means the violation of God's law, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God's law, not the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic law, but the absolute eternal principles of God's holy character. The uncircumcision of your flesh. Why does he use uncircumcision here? In Ephesians 2, he says "You're dead. we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The reason he uses circumcision here is that in Colossae, the challenge, the false teaching was that you needed to be circumcised. So he has to, he has to address it to them that, that circumcision didn't remove anything in terms of their spiritual condition or change their spiritual condition. Though you were uh, 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 dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh as Gentiles, uh, he, and he's talking here about spiritual circumcision, not physical circumcision, and because they had not been spiritually circumcised, which in verse 11 and 12 was related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because they had not been baptized by the Holy Spirit, so that the power of the sin nature of the flesh was broken, and that's the idea of circumcision by the, of the flesh, uh, you're not regenerate. So the issue there was the false, that's why he uses that word uncircumcision, he's directly He's directly tweaking the opposition by using that terminology. He is uh, he's calling names by doing that, as it were. Now, in Colossians 2.13, we have a mirror statement to Ephesians 2.5 and 6. And Colossians 2.13 says, Though or when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made us alive together. Now, this is a past tense verb of poeo, which simply means to make alive together with. So that's your main, main word here, your main verb, to, make, to have been made alive together. Aorist tense is past. It just refers simply to the time in your past when you trusted Christ as your Savior. Your condition at that time was you were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says the same thing. Even though you, we were dead in our tr- transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, by grace you have been saved. Where do you find that phrase? In verse 8. See, he first introduces it here in verse 5 in Ephesians 2, and then he's going to develop it more in uh, 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So that gift of God is this entire transaction of being made alive together with him. Uh, it's not the faith, it's not the grace. Uh, some will tell you that 
uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that God gives you faith. That's the gift of God. Others will say it's the grace that's the gift of God. Both misread the grammar. It is in context. God's, it's a whole process that's the gift of God in regenerating us and saving us. So we have this important statement that we've been made uh, uh, alive together with him, and that's followed by another clause, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, in English, it's even clear because forgiven is in a past tense form in English, which shows that it had to have taken place prior to the action of being made alive together. But we see in the uh, in the Greek that the verb charizomai here is an aorist active participle, also has to precede the action of that main verb, which is being made alive. So he forgave us all trespasses, but that's before he makes us alive. What we learn when we skip down to verse 14 is that this happened when he nailed that certificate of debt at the cross. He's, what Paul's developing here is just the, the breadth of God's judicial action at the cross and what that means to us. So this is a uh, an adverb should be translated with a causal sense. He makes us he's able to make us alive together with him because he had already forgiven us of those sins. But this word charizomai is really important here because it emphasizes something a little bit different than another word that could be used for forgiveness. It emphasizes the idea in its root meaning of giving freely or graciously without strings attached. It's done as a free gift. The person doesn't deserve it. He hasn't done anything to earn it. It's a free gift. That's the core meaning of this word. It's applied to financial forgiveness or the eradication of a debt and one of Jesus' parables in Luke 7, 42 and following, where it refers to the cancellation of a sum of money or debt that it's owed. Now, just think about that in terms of the correlation here. If, if you owe someone a lot of money and they forgive that debt and they give you a, a receipt on that, can they come back two weeks later and say, wait a minute, you still owe me some money? Maybe not all of it, but some of it. See, that's how some of us handle forgiveness. But forgiveness is, it's eradicated instantly. There's, there's no going back. It is a complete total transaction where the debt is no longer an issue. It's eradicated and removed. In that sense, it also has the idea of forgiving or pardoning an action. Now, what's interesting is this word charizomai is, is not used as much as the other word for forgiveness in the New Testament. But when it is used, it always emphasizes the mental attitude and the foundation for forgiveness, which is having that grace mental attitude. So we need to translate it, this phrase, either in the sense of because he had already forgiven or canceled uh, we can use it, use more of an economic term here that he canceled the debt. So we can say he canceled all of our trespasses. We can use that phrase, canceling the debt, because if we look at, at verse 13, or excuse me, the beginning of verse 14, it begins having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, or some translations are a little clearer, having wiped out the certificate of debt 
that was against us. So see this whole context here, the end of verse uh, verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 are all emphasizing the same principle of just cancellation, wiping out, eradicating this debt of sin. That's what forgiveness is. So we can translate it because he had already canceled or already forgiven the debt or after he had already forgiven or canceled. That picks up more of a temporal idea. Both are present there. See, the, the Greek just uses this participial form, and the hearer, because he knows this as his first language, picks up the nuance. Just you do the same. You and I do the same thing in English because we know how the language is used. We we catch that. So uh, it could be either one. Both of them convey uh, the same thing, and that is that that forgiveness or cancellation of that debt already already occurred. Now, as I've mentioned a couple of times already, there are two words that are used to communicate forgiveness in the New Testament. The first one is the one that is used uh, the, uh, the most of the time in the New Testament, and that is the word group related to the verb afiemi. The noun is aphasis. That's the second line there. And it has a general idea of letting something go. You can, uh, you can uh, let loose an animal that's tied up. That You could use the word aphasis for that. It's, it's letting it go. Or canceling a debt remitting a a debt or forgiving, leaving someone, or forgiving in the sense of forgiving or pardoning an act or action. The noun and verb are both used the same way. This is the verb that's used in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And it emphasizes the act of forgiveness itself. Whereas the second word, charizomai, which is the one we have here in uh, Colossians 2.13, is a word that focuses on showing favor or kindness. Uh, It's related to grace, to being gracious to someone, which means to treat them in a manner that they haven't earned or deserved, and it emphasizes the attitude that undergirds forgiveness. Not their attitude, but our attitude. So if we apply this to to our mental attitude, that's our focus is it's we're giving something to someone that they don't deserve. And that's hard to do. Sometimes it's hard to accept something that we don't we don't deserve. Now this word is used and applied to our horizontal forgiveness for believers in passages like Ephesians four thirty two, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. See, that's that that concept. We forgive others. It's grace toward others. And the pattern Scripture says is that it's it's the pattern is what happened when we were saved and experiencing that complete total forgiveness where the slate is wiped clean. You don't come back the next day and say, well, remember when you did that? See, it, you either cancel it or you don't cancel it. Sometimes we do that because it's hard. I think the hardest thing that Christians have to understand, that any human being has to understand, is grace and forgiveness. And you only think you do, and I only think I do at times. It's really hard. For some of us, it's harder than others just because of the trends of our sin nature. Some of us have trends in our sin nature that run towards uh, mental attitudes said, such as anger and resentment and bitterness and hostility, and we want to hold things against people who have done something against us or someone we love. 
and we want to hold on to that. And it's really hard for some people uh, because, it, and, and it all relates to imp- impersonal love and loving somebody. But if you think about your relationship with your children or maybe the relationship of your parents or for some of you, it's just going to be your relationship with your dog or your cat. And when they tear up that expensive oriental rug, you don't throw them out the front door and say, well, that's the end of you. You know, you... Now, I saw some people sharing looks like, well, wait a minute. Maybe I did, yeah. I understand. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. So... That's the idea of forgiveness. It's an expression of, of, of genuine love that we will step around it. That's why when Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13, he talks about love in the sense that love uh, bears all things, and it, it, it steps around us. It doesn't make an issue out of things that could be made an issue out of. You let that, you just set it aside. You're not going to... Let that be, be the issue. The other word, afiemi, is the word that's used in 1 John 1.9. So 1 John 1.9 is emphasizing not the attitude that undergirds forgiveness, but it's the act of forgiveness that we have from God. Now, whenever I talk about forgiveness, there's always the uh, question comes up from some people is, okay, you said that, that God's forgiveness of us is related to our forgiveness of others. And this is clearly stated by Jesus in a couple of different passages. And I want you to go there. Let's just turn to Mark 11. The key verse is Mark 11:25, but we want to just pick up a little bit of the surrounding context. And in the surrounding context, Jesus, this is after the triumphal entry. So this is, this is right before the cross, two or three days maximum before the cross. Jesus has cleansed the temple in verses 15 through 25, and he is talking to his, teaching his disciples about prayer in verses 20 to 24. So then in verses 25 and 26, he's going to go on to say some other things about prayer. He says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, now that's a mental attitude sin. You've got resentment, bitterness, anger, hostility, something that is consciously there. Now we all know that there are circumstances in life where we have trouble uh, truly forgiving someone. And it comes up now and then in our thinking. Uh, We're going to have to address that confess that before the Lord and move on. Eventually, we're able to get past that. But if that is consciously in our head, then if we have to forgive them. You, in other words, if you're trying to confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9, and at the same time you're bitter and angry towards somebody, you know, don't get wrapped around the axle or are you in fellowship for half a second, a microsecond. The issue isn't being in fellowship for half a second or a microsecond or a nanosecond. It's abiding in Christ, which is staying in fellowship, and it just isn't going to happen if you're consciously still holding on to that bitterness and forgiveness. It has to do with your mental attitude, not that person, that you have to cancel it. You mentally let it go. I remember years ago a very close friend of mine uh, uh, 
was uh, our couple, very close friends of mine, uh, had the, had a, a situation occur in their marriage, and he left her, and she called me up all broken down. Her mother was still probably, if she's still alive, one of the most bitter people I've ever met. And she called me and asked me, well, what do I do? I said, well, you, this is really hard right now, but you have to forgive him. It doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying you have to go back to him or anything else, but you maintain this attitude that you learned from your mother to be bitter and angry. The only person you're going to hurt is, him, is, is you. It's not going to hurt him. It's not going to hurt anybody else. You're just going to wipe out your own soul. And see, that's what, what it does when we hold on to these things and we can't just truly cut the, cut the ribbon and let it free float away and be, and be uh, completely removed. So this is what Jesus is saying here. If you do not forgive, in other words, if you're still maintaining that mental attitude, sin, a bitterness, anger, resentment, whatever, then your Father in heaven won't forgive uh, your trespasses. You're not going to get back in fellowship till you deal with the sin that's, that's in your life at that particular time. That's the same thing that, that David said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, and that word regard means if I look in my soul and I see sin there, ongoing sin, if that's there, the Lord will not hear me. First John 1, 9 isn't a license to sin. It is the opportunity to get past sin and move forward so that we can serve serve the Lord. Jesus has a parallel, there's a parallel passage to this which is expressed in Matthew chapter 6, which also has an interesting um, context, deals a lot with um, uh, forgiveness, also prayer, and this is just following the uh, disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, but the disciples' prayer. In verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Some people misread this and think, wow, if I'm not forgiving everybody all the time, then I'm never going to get back in fellowship. The context in both passages is is that that none of us can go to the Lord in prayer while we're holding on to sin of any kind, but here it's specifically uh, resentment, bitterness, hostility related to failure to forgive. Well, then that raises the next question, which is, well, how many times do I have to forgive this person anyway? I mean, what if it's somebody who is just constantly, constantly creating the same problem, the same trauma, it just goes on and on and on? Well, Jesus addresses this when Peter asks him that exact question. Uh, the disciples face the same problems we do. And in this context, it's really interesting to read this context because this is uh, in Matthew 18. This is the first time Jesus uses the term church. And he deals with it in terms of uh, uh, the discussing how to handle a, another believer who sins against you and the procedures that are laid down from verses uh, 15 through 20. But the context talks about forgiveness all the way through here, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 10 through 14, how to deal with a brother who has or another believer who has offended you in verses 15 through 20. And then he gives the parable of the, what's called the parable of the unforgiving servant in verses 21 uh, to 35. And this is when Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive this guy who just keeps abusing me? However, that abuse is defined. 
somebody who, and, and sometimes I find in 30 years of pastoral ministry, I've learned that there are people in the congregation and people in this congregation who have suffered all manner of abuse growing up. And what I find is that does such a damage to a person's soul that whenever you talk about forgiveness or loving someone that doesn't deserve it, that's all they can, they, their, their mind just zeroes in on that issue in their life uh, like a spotlight, and that's all they can think of, and they evaluate everything through that grid of that horrible experience that occurred in their life and how difficult it is to let that go in terms of true, genuine, uh, genuine forgiveness. And it's like, well, do I have to put myself back in that situation again? That's a totally different question. Forgiveness is first and foremost a matter of your own mental attitude and how your mind is addressing that person or that situation. A second and separate question is having forgiven them, what are the consequences? What legitimate consequences should there be from me towards them? This is just addressing the first part. Jesus, Peter says, how many times should I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus says, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven, which is an idiomatic way of saying uh, forever. You continue to do that. And then Jesus gives a parable related to, related to forgiveness, which I'm not going to go, go into. The, the issue here in terms of forgiveness up to 70 times 7 is really the issue. There's two issues, consequences and forgiveness. And I find in, in America at least, probably in other cultures too, there's a real problem understanding the difference between forgiving somebody and consequences. The best illustration comes out of the Old Testament in Second Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel um, 8 and 9 and following when David's committed his sin with Bathsheba. And then Nathan comes and gives the prophet comes and gives this little uh, parable about a, a rich uh, landowner who has hundreds of sheep and he goes and he steals this little sheep from his neighbor, poor neighbor. And uh, then, he, then when David, he says, what do you think should be done? David listed things that should be done. And, um, and so Nathan then said, well, you're that rich man. You, because of your adultery with Bathsheba, you've stolen uh, Uriah's wife. And so you're going, to, you're going to be guilty. Now, God's not going to take your life as the Mosaic law required, but and God's going to forgive you. God, Psalm 51, Psalm 32 expressed God's forgiveness for David for that sin. But there were, uh, was a fourfold consequence that God brought into David's life. So forgiveness doesn't mean there aren't consequences. There are some offenses against us. We need to forgive that person but that doesn't mean we put ourselves back in a position of danger where our life is threatened or other aspects of our life are threatened. There may be consequences for action that is uh, separate from forgiveness. We for forgive somebody, but there are consequences, and you're not going to be part of my life anymore. Uh, that may be so. It's going to differ from person to person, situation to situation, circumstance. There's not just a hard and fast rule. It's going to depend upon a lot of variables. But the consequences that you may uh, operate or bring into effect as a result of someone's actions towards you are not necessarily the result of non-forgiveness. You always see this problem when somebody's on death row 
oh, the family forgives him, let's not kill him. Well, it's a criminal action. It's not a spiritual issue. There are criminal consequences to actions. And if the person, uh, what was it, Carla Faye Tucker, back in the late 90s got executed, she'd become a believer in prison. And you have all these uh, uh, panty-waist pastors out there, oh, let her live, don't, don't execute her. They don't understand the difference between criminal and non-criminal actions and forgiveness. So... This is what what um, uh, what Jesus is talking about here is forgiveness. Now, in Ephesians one seventeen and Colossians one fourteen, forgiveness here is related to redemption. It's the forgiveness of sins is appositional to the term forgiveness. Now, the, what's interesting is the term for redemption also has that idea of releasing someone from debt. So for many years I, I struggled understanding the relationship between forgiveness and redemption because redemption is a payment of a price, and we don't normally think of forgiveness in that kind of an economic term of canceling a debt or forgiving a debt, but yet they are synonyms. And in fact, Colossians 1.7 and, I mean, uh, Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14 tie redemption, which is the objective work of Christ on the cross paying for our sins, to forgiveness. So how are we to understand that? Well, it's understanding these four different ways in which the Bible talks about forgiveness. The first is what I call forensic forgiveness, which is um, excuse me, was directed um, uh, directed toward God, where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. This happened at the cross. It happens for everybody. That's what is being talked about here: is this cancellation of the judicial penalty at the cross. So it's the first category, forgiveness, is related to God and what happened at the cross. Second, we're forgiven positionally in, in Christ. We're, given, we're forgiven positionally in Christ at the instant of our salvation. That's a, a, it, it, this is where it talks about the fact that in him we have that redemption. It's already occurred in terms of the cancellation of the objective penalty at the cross, but we realize it personally, positionally, in Christ at the instant of salvation. The third category of forgiveness is experiential forgiveness, one we're uh, familiar with in 1 John 1, 9. And then the last is the hard one that I've talked about some, and that's relational forgiveness. Forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.32 says, just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. We need you, if the lack of forgiveness... I think has a lot of consequences in our lives uh, health-wise, has a lot of consequences in our lives in terms of our mental attitude because rather than focusing on God at those times, we're focusing on somebody who's a problem, somebody who's hurt us. And that has all kinds of... Sin has a number of unintended consequences. We can't trace it all out. We can't draw a chart and show this causes this because it's not in that way, but everybody's different. But when we're out of fellowship and we're sinning, sin, anger, resentment, this all has effects not only spiritually but also uh, physically in, in our own lives. And you can, sometimes you can even see it. This isn't scientific. I can't prove it. It doesn't say it in the Scripture. But you see people who've spent a lifetime of hatred and bitterness, you can see it written on their face. And you see other people who are relaxed and who forgive others and who understand their forgiveness from God, and you can see that relaxed mental attitude written on their face, and and it makes a difference. So forgiveness isn't just an abstract theological concept. 
It is understanding that reality that we are truly, truly forgiven in Christ. No matter what has happened in your past, no matter how much you may feel a victim or guilty or somehow that you participate in that, it's wiped out at the cross so that we're truly free from whatever it is and whoever did anything to us or our anger or resentment to them so that we can go forward and experience genuine happiness and joy without that being a dark shadow that always hovers around the edge of our consciousness. We have true forgiveness in Christ. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we have these, this clear truth in Scripture of our forgiveness, complete cancellation of sin, that it's not an issue, that there is true freedom there for us, freedom to obey and unfortunately too often freedom to disobey but in when we do disobey there is freedom to recover through the use of first john 1 9 and experience that ongoing forgiveness as a result of confession of sin father we're thankful that we have such a rich salvation that's not dependent in any way upon who we are or what we've done but it's dependent totally upon who you are and what jesus christ did It's not our character, it's your character. It's not our actions, it's Christ's actions. And that is our pattern. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins that you might have eternal life. And all that is stated is that you believe. Trust in him and him alone. It's a free gift. It is not something earned or deserved. It is freely given by God and will never be taken away. Father, we pray that you would just help us to implement what we've learned this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand for our closing hymn, number 406, My Hope is in the Lord, number 406. And then I'm going to ask uh, Morgan if he would please come up and dismiss us in closing prayer. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we go forth in joy knowing that uh, we are alive in you through the provision you made for us through Christ's death on the cross. We thank you for this forgiveness and freedom that is ours eternally. We thank you for this year and this time together that we can go forward and worship you and continue to examine your truth. We pray that you would uh, give Robbie safety and the ability to communicate with those that he teaches in Kiev as he's gone. And we pray your blessings on those that protect us at home and away this day. Pray that you will allow us to use this coming year and this day to your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.